welcome to a special GradCast series, There's No Planet B. Each week, myself, Rose Reese, as well as a few other guests, will have conversations about issues that are important to grad students in the realm of all things environment and sustainability on Western's campus and in our local London community. Today, we're fortunate to be here with Brendan Samuels. Thanks for being here, Brendan. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Things are pretty great. Of course. So to get things started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work as a grad student? Who are you? Why'd we ask you to be here? <laughs> oh, I should have that figured out by now. But like most grad students, I'm kind of finding my way. Um, I'm doing my PhD in the Department of Biology at Western. I'm in my third year now, which is hard to believe. Um, and my research is about birds. I study how birds see, and I apply how birds see to understand why birds fly into windows on buildings, um, which sounds like a trivial thing to most people, but it actually happens quite a lot. It's pretty devastating for the birds. Um, and so my research is quite applied around how do we solve this problem to actually conserve birds? I mean, you said it was trivial, but how many birds are we talking here? Like if you had to approximate a number for us. So the leading statistics are that in North America each year, it could be in the range of 1 billion birds, that's billion with a B, per year killed by flying into windows on buildings. Um, I actually think that's kind of an underestimate and nobody really knows. It's such an astronomically huge problem that it's hard to wrap our head around estimating it properly. Um, the way I try and wrap people's heads around just how big this is, is I ask them to recount a time in their life when a bird hit their window. And almost everybody has a story like this. And then I say, okay, well, is that window still there? Most people nod, yes it is, because windows don't really move that much. And then I say, okay, well, now imagine how many windows there are like yours on your block. They do a little mental math. Then I ask them to think about how many blocks there are in their city. And then we scale that up to how many cities there are with glass windows on buildings all over the world. And what we arrive at is this realization that this is probably killing billions of birds all over the world every single year. And it's going to continue because the glass is going to still be there and birds are gonna keep flying into it until we adopt solutions that modifies the glass in a way that birds can see and avoid it. Definitely. I mean, this is obviously like a very, very specific research topic. How did you get interested in this? Like what about this was so fascinating to you or what about it um, kind of prompted you to try and find a solution? Well, this is why I think it's, some people write it off as being trivial. Um, I think people think of birds crashing into windows and they go, what a dumb bird. Why would it do that? Or this happened to me one time in my life. It must be a freak anomaly, like unbelievable. And they kind of just write it off as a one-off. Um, it actually happened to me as a kid many years ago. Uh, a bird flew into my bedroom window and died. And like most people, I picked it up and I put it in, I buried it and I never thought about it again. Um, I arrived at this research by studying how birds experience their world. Um, so I have pet parrots, birds that live with me at home. They're not great pets for most people, but I love mine to bits. <laughs> um, they're fascinating. They teach me a lot. Um, but birds hear and see and behave in very different ways. Um, their worlds are very different from ours. 
And I did my master's at Western studying how birds hear and how their hearing kind of resembles the ways that people listen to music um, by studying their perception of rhythm and sound. I think I actually did an interview for a GradCast about this some time ago. So I, I studied bird hearing for a while. And at the end of my degree, my supervisor said, hey, there's this other project I have in mind. What do you think about bird vision? Um, and I did a little bit of homework and found out that bird vision is a world unto itself. Um, it's one of the best studied biological systems. It's super complex and interesting. Um, and so I thought, wouldn't it be neat if I could apply my background in neuroscience and my interest in how birds experience their worlds to actually solve an applied problem and help birds? Um, I then became involved with a nonprofit organization called Fatal Light Awareness Program in Toronto. Um, they study the window collisions issue by going out and advocating and documenting um, really the carnage. And since my time working for them, I've kind of this has taken on new meaning for me because I've seen firsthand the consequences of inaction. Um, and so I'm really, I, I feel really lucky to be able to wed the theoretical interests of mine in perception and neuroscience with solving this conservation problem. No, my mind is just, my mind is blown in terms of on an annual basis, we're talking billions of deaths that are occurring like within the bird species. And something that I think I'm learning more as I'm getting older and becoming more of an adult, I guess, is just how interesting it is from the perspective of humankind's dominion on the natural landscape. So to think about your research where it's examining bird vision and again, that, that one-off comment you made about, oh, what a silly bird. It's like, well, is it silly or did we disrupt <laughs> the birds? Uh, you know, natural ecosystem and the spaces that they would otherwise be hanging out in if we didn't impose ourselves. So I find that really interesting in terms of the conservation issue um, for folks who may not know exactly like what that term means with respect to, you know, biodiversity loss or something like that. What do you mean by, you know, conservation and how does this apply to your research or I'm going to start calling it the bird issue or the bird problem. Let me know sure. if there's a less offensive way to say that. But I like that. Um, so hmm, where to begin? We know that the natural world is in trouble. Um, we know that we are at risk of losing an alarming number of species within our lifetimes. We know that habitat loss is a driving factor here, um, that we are simply um, over consuming the resources that our world can provide to support life as we know it. Not just human life, but biodiversity, the diversity of life that is found on earth alongside us. And looking at birds specifically, we have lost, um, again, an alarming amount of our bird life in North America and worldwide in just the last 50 years. A study was published in 2019 um, by a lab at Cornell University uh, which found that we've lost just about one third of North America's birds um, in just 50 years. And this has untold consequences for the birds, but also for the ecosystems that these birds participate in. Um, and so nobody really knows what happens when we run out of birds. I imagine it's going to be bad news because birds are really important pollinators. Birds are important for insect control. Birds are important for lots of ecosystem services that we take for granted. 
And so we have this impetus now to address the drivers of where these birds are disappearing to. And human activities are definitely um, responsible. So window collisions represent one direct source of mortality. I mentioned habitat loss. We are taking away space, uh, land, resources that these birds need to survive and reproduce. Another really big threat to birds is cats. Um, and it's an inconvenient reality for people who have cats and like cats, but cats are predators and they are an introduced invasive species. We don't think of them that way, but as many birds as windows kill, cats kill three times that easily. Um, so if you are listening and you have a pet cat and you care about birds and conserving biodiversity, I implore you, please keep your cat inside or teach it to wear a leash like a dog. If you live in London, it's actually illegal to let your cat roam outside. Most people don't know oh, that. Wow. Yeah, we have a bylaw for it because it's so harmful for the environment and really not very kind to your cat either. I mean, we have a lot of coyotes and bald eagles and vehicles in London that would not be very friendly to your cat. Um, but I digress. We can have a whole other conversation about cats. Um, we need to wake up to the reality that our natural world is in trouble and we need to actively conserve it. We need to take actions today that will affect how much life we have left to conserve tomorrow. Um, there's different ways of framing this. We can call it our natural heritage. We can call it biodiversity. We can call it the indigenous landscape. Um, and our very futures depend on it. We are tied to the health of biodiversity on our planet. Definitely. And so you seem extremely knowledgeable on all of this. And I think that to a certain degree, this goes outside of your own research as well. Um, it seems as though you have a lot more knowledge than just kind of the bird aspect. Are you involved in anything kind of outside of your research uh, to do with biodiversity or natural heritage or anything like that? Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not that knowledgeable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I like to read and this stuff is important to me. Um, but certainly we've got experts in biodiversity at Western who I've learned a ton from. Um, I do a fair bit of work in the local environmental sector. Um, so I volunteer uh, on an advisory committee for the city of London for environmental and ecological planning. And what this means is when the city is looking at developing something or monitoring, um, I don't know, a park or designating an area to be a park or, you know, creating some project that has environmental implications. I am a member of a group that looks at the uh, biological, geological, ecological implications of what's being discussed. And typically I bring sort of the bird lens to those discussions. Um, so that's one way in which I've learned about local biodiversity. Uh, I volunteer with Nature London. They're one of the largest nature organizations in the city. And I have participated in various initiatives to monitor rare species where I live. Um, one thing that I really like to do in my free time is I just go out and take pictures of bugs. And I use this nifty app on my, app on my phone called iNaturalist that will just identify what that thing is that you're looking at. And I find this magic. I think it goes back to when I was a kid and I was obsessed with Pokedexes. Now I can just take a picture of something and I know what it's called. And I know if it evolved here or if it was brought over from Europe or Asia. Um, and so just through trial and error and iteration and having one green thumb and one black thumb, I've learned quite a bit about the diversity of life around me. Um, I also really like to garden um, and 
one of my favorite activities in the nice weather is to just go around and look at the new things that are cropping up in my yard. I have so much respect for that because I can't even keep <laughs> and cacti alive. It's so terrible. Um, my mother's a beautiful gardener. I inherited zero of that part of her talent. So I will just- I mean, I've killed a lot more plants than I've kept alive. I referenced my green thumb and my black thumb. There's no shame in it. You just have <laughs> yeah. to learn something each time. I'm going to adopt that language because uh, I feel that on a spiritual level. <laughs> One of the things that I'm curious about is you have such this unique intersection of spaces that you're involved in when it comes to not only the, the bird lens, but uh, biodiversity and addressing that loss and issues of conservation. When it comes to being in that advocacy space, though, and I think we all know this as members of SOGS and just advocating for grad students as just our community, to get people to actually move or take up action in the spaces that we want them to is super tricky. Oh yeah. So I'm wondering like when it comes to, and I'm just gonna call it again, the bird issue. <laughs> how do you get people engaged? How do you get them to care? Not even from the stakeholder perspective of investing money and time, but just to invest in their, like to get their attention. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest conundrums we face as a society is how do we get stuff done that needs to be done? We're all concerned about climate change and biodiversity loss. Um, we learn about these things and we realize that this is important. And then what happens? Um, I feel like we're now moving past the era of denialism and we're now in a space of apathy or inaction, uh, which is equally dangerous. So I thought a lot about this um, as I was picking up dead birds around buildings and wondering, you know, how do I make this stop? It's one thing to understand why these birds are hitting these windows, but if we don't actually adopt solutions, then what's the point of any of this? And I realized that really addressing a hazard that was put there by people is not the fault of the bird and actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with the bird. It has to do with changing human behavior. And to do that, you need to enter the space of human perspectives, perception, um, ideas, and values. And so I've spent a lot of time figuring out how to connect with different people who have different values and still get the important messaging across to convince them to do things that matter. Um, so uh, I think a way to do that is we need to um, convey the emotional weight of the things that we're talking about. Um, I have picked up so many birds and the birds that I find even now, years into this work, you know, your heart sinks every time. And I think people who've experienced a bird hitting their window at home, you know, in the moments after that's happened to them, a potentially traumatic event, that's when they're really going to be you know, most receptive to new information. That's when they're going to be like, wow, this is awful. You know, I really, I don't want this to ever happen again. I feel so bad for the bird. What does this mean? How do I contribute? Um, and so I'm fascinated by that, that point in time when people are receptive to new information, when, you know, they might be a bit devastated, but they, they can be inspired. They're more impressionable. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have interacted with quite a lot of people 
um, who have just experienced a bird hitting their window and I, I'm always happy to help them out, but I learn a little bit through um, these interactions. I think that when people contemplate the destruction of the natural world and climate change, we get overcome with anxiety and dread and we can become even a little bit paralyzed. It just feels like it's so much, right? Like how are we as individuals supposed to do anything meaningful that will actually accomplish change and actually, you know, turn this around. And I feel like the way to do that is through gentle conversations with people and that those values connections, um, finding out what's important to this person um, who's going through a difficult time and explaining, you know, you're not going through this alone. And this is why this little action that you take actually does really matter. For me, it's sort of a convenient reality that birds are just important to people. Um, even without realizing it, you know, people take a lot of comfort in going for a walk in, in going for a walk in the morning and, and hearing birds singing, um, you know, the bright colors and birds are featured culturally all over the world. And so I like to think of birds as kind of a gateway drug to nature, where if you get people to pay attention to birds, suddenly they're more attuned to their natural surroundings and they're more likely to care. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but there's a lot of work to do in the way of psychology of figuring out how we get people to care and become invested and motivate the change we want to see. No, that, that absolutely answered my question and got to some things that I was thinking about as you're talking, especially because as far back as I can remember, even into childhood, I've had an affinity for ducks. You know, you're little, <laughs> you learn to feed the ducks at the pond. Mm -hmm. And as a young adult living in London, I'm lucky that I've been to Stratford a couple of times. And I know they take care of the swans by the theater, but I go and I look yeah. at the swans and I admire their beauty. But uh, you said this line earlier, uh, and I'm hoping I'm not dating myself. I don't think I am because <laughs> cool on this talk. But you said a line in terms of like, what happens if the birds go away or like what does that look like and I thought of the uh 1963 Hitchcock film The Birds where all of a sudden you just have this swath of birds and they're like demonically attacking humankind but then I was sitting here being like oh my god in like the dystopian landscape that is our future if we don't act on climate change the ducks aren't going to be there. Maybe there's the swans go extinct. Like it'll start with perhaps like, you know, smaller species of birds that are going to become extinct. But I just kind of sat with that line that you said. And I was like, wow. Well, I have some good so news. <laughs> <laughs> I have some good news for you on the duck front. Um, awesome. Although birds are in decline, the birds that seem to be doing the best are ducks. And why? That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not, there, there's different ideas about it. We've conserved a good chunk of wetland habitat and they seem to be um, reasonably okay with living around people. But of the birds that are declining the fastest, ducks are not among them. Um, the birds that we really need to be concerned about are birds that rely on insects for food. Um, for instance, bank swallows, chimney swifts, barn swallows. Um, these are birds that have declined by in the range of 90, 95, 98% across Canada. And the reason that's problematic is because if we don't have birds that eat insects and we're looking at booms in mosquito numbers with increasing climate, uh, increasing temperatures and more moisture, 
um, you know, it's going to throw the entire ecosphere out of whack. But the ducks ah. are fine, and so you can continue to go and feed them. <laughs> That'll be don't, the title of this episode. The ducks are fine. <laughs> Save the swallows. <laughs> yes, please. But don't feed them bread. That's my one request. Okay, can you, I, I know Rose is probably going to jump in because she has fantastic questions. Can you just detail the bread issue? Because I've heard this, I thought it was urban myth or legend, and I've heard it more and more that I'm like, okay the bread is not good for their, is it their digestional tract? They don't have. Yeah, it's, it's all around just a bad scene. Um, okay. Nutritionally, not great for them. If they eat a lot of it, you know, it can lead to health problems. Um, they might start eating bread instead of eating natural occurring th things in their diet mm -hmm. that are really important. Um, so I would refrain from feeding bread if you can. So if you were to see perhaps like a three or four year old out with their parents at a duck pond, <laughs> a loaf of wonder bread, how would Brendan, the knowledgeable doctoral candidate slash activist slash <laughs> expert, would you intervene or would this be some, and this is a personal question because I'm yeah. struggling with this interpersonally, um, how to broach these things, you know, have you ever done the duck intervention? <laughs> that's, that's hard. I mean, this child's name isn't Danica, right? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I will intervene if I feel like it's going to go in a good direction. Um, yeah. You have to be gentle about it. People react sensitively to these things. I don't want to be didactic and telling people what they are and aren't allowed to do. Um, if I had some bird seed with me, which I often do, I might hand them some and say, hey, this is healthier. You should give them this. Ducks also really like frozen peas. I don't carry those around though. Um, but bird feeding itself is kind of controversial. Some people are really for it. Other people think this isn't great. We should let birds find their own food. And I'm not the judge and jury in that dynamic. That's my take. No, much respect. Makes sense. That makes tons of sense. Okay. So we've talked about Birds hitting the windows. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the ducks, which mm -hmm. is fine. We won't <laughs> talk about ducks anymore. <laughs> but what are some of the other issues, I guess, facing birds specifically in London, like in our local area? I mean, obviously, um, they're going to be hitting glass. They're going to be hitting windows. There's lots of buildings around here. But what other issues do they face? So cats are a big one, like I talked about. And in London, we have that no roaming bylaw where you're not allowed to let your cat wander outside. And it seems like people just don't know about it. Um, we've got invasive species that can be dangerous for birds. So there's this really bad one called burdock. Um, if you've ever gone for a walk in the woods and you've got these little brown things stuck to you afterwards that are spiky, you know, that's real annoying for us. We just pull it off. If you're a bird that weighs 20 grams, you can't do that. You just get stuck to it and you die. Um, <laughs> there are issues with habitat loss. You know, if you think about where we are, it's called the forest city, right? And people think, oh, you know, we live in a forest. Actually, that name comes from the forest that used to be here before we cut it all down and then oh, paved wow. it and turned it into a city. Um, and so we now have this really fragmented landscape where there are still green spaces and we've got corridors between those green spaces, but the birds don't stay there. You know, the birds have to get where they want to go, right? They're migrating up from Central and South America. They're arriving in London. You know, they might be in... Um, one green patch and then move to the next the following day. And so we really need to treat 
um, our cities like open airspace for birds. And addressing things like windows and cats are, are really, really key. Um, one other one that is hard to wrap your head around is the purchasing of coffee. Um, not all coffee is grown in a way that is sustainable for bird populations because many of the birds we're trying to conserve migrate into parts of the world where coffee is grown. And for commercial growers, what's become common practice is they will just level where there used to be rainforest and they'll grow coffee in monoculture. And so if you can find coffee that you can verify was shade grown or grown in a way that's deemed bird friendly by an organization like Nature Conservancy of Canada, I know Kicking Horse Coffee has their endorsement um, or the Smithsonian has another one. What that means is you've got coffee plant plants, but you've also got habitat in the surrounding area. So those birds still have places to overwinter, feed. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could rant about all the problems that birds face. They've got their work cut out for them. They definitely do. And unfortunately, that is all the time we've got to talk about birds today. I feel like we could do another five episodes just talking out about birds and birds in London. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show, Brendan. If any of our viewers or our listeners wanted to learn more about your research or kind of your work with environmental advocacy and obviously with the birds, um, is there a website or email or social media handle that you'd like to share with them? Yeah, please. Um, so I use Twitter a lot, um, which is, I guess, a little bit on the nose because I'm tweeting about birds. Um, my Twitter handle is a reference to what I study, which is bird vision. It's I on the fly, all one word. Um, I study birds and how they see while they fly. It's a little bit cheesy. Um, if you want to follow some work that I've been doing lately for London's bird team, um, there's a website called birdfriendlylondon.ca. And that's a community organization that I'm coordinating. That's great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This has been There's No Planet B, a special series created by GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Rose, and with my co-host, Danica, and we have been here with our special guest, Brendan. And this episode was produced by Reese. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at GradCast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night, everyone.